Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of April 19th, 2021. On this week's show, Ken Early of the Irish Times and the Second Captains podcast joins us to talk about the new Super League proposal in European soccer, why everyone except the sport's richest clubs hates it. We'll also discuss the pileup of quarterbacks at the top of the upcoming NFL draft, and we'll look at Triller Fight Club, the upstart promotion featuring the likes of Snoop Dogg, Jake Paul, and Evander Holyfield, threatening to upend boxing. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of Slow Burn Season 4 on David Duke, also in D.C., the proud owner of a George Foster baseball bat. Stefan Fatsis, he's the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. I'm just going to let the, the bat pass by, are you? Ah. I could say, you know. Trying try and have a conversation with you. Sure. Who's George Foster? Is that, the, are you talking about <laughs> former Indiana Pacers center, George Foster, or somebody else? Oh, man. Joel. I think you're thinking of Jeff Foster. George, oh, George Foster. Oh, wow. Jeff, wow. <laughs> George yeah, Foster right. is a member of the 1970s uh, Big Red Machine. Big Red Machine, Cincinnati Reds. And Hit then, 50 homers in a season. And yeah. then uh, played for the Mets and will be mentioned in my afterball, actually. Yeah, I found a bag of stuff in the garage, old golf clubs, baseball bats, whiffle ball bats and there was this george foster model bat in there and i love it sitting on my desk now don't know how it got in there or where i stole it from you found a 1976 sports illustrated cover in your garage this weekend basically basically sports you got (laughs) (laughs) hey joel hey slate staff writer the host of slow burn season three and the upcoming slow burn season six i just made it way more awkward that's proof of concept that the way that we usually do the introductions is correct just wanted to switch it up just to make sure yeah keep everybody on their toes this morning you know things things are moving around uh in in the sports world so we have to be able to adjust on sunday 12 of the richest soccer clubs in europe six from england three from spain and three from italy unveiled a plan for a breakaway super league the proposed The 20-team league would be one of the most lucrative sports organizations ever. It's already arguably the most divisive. While the league would guarantee its members billions, potentially, it also would gut European soccer's most prestigious club competition, the Champions League, undermine the structure, history, allure, and charm of the domestic leagues, and threaten even the World Cup as we know it. Our friend Ken Early is a columnist for the Irish Times and a host of the second Captain's podcast. He joins us from Dublin, Ireland. Welcome back to the show, Ken. Thanks for having me, Stefan. Good to have you back. Uh, So if Sunday was crazy, Monday has been downright bonkers. We're talking in the late afternoon in Europe. We've already heard threats not only to bar players from the renegade clubs from playing in the European Championship and the World Cup, but also more immediately to kick Chelsea, Real Madrid, and Manchester City out of the Champions League semifinals scheduled to begin next week. Before we get to the chaos, Ken, let's discuss the proposal. Explain briefly how the Super League might work and how it would be a threat to the established order. 
Well, it's essentially a threat to the established order because it sort of bypasses them. It's the clubs taking control of the top European competition or setting up their own competition, which they control. So the clubs so far involved are six from England, uh, including the two Manchester clubs, Liverpool, and three London clubs, Chelsea, Arsenal, and Tottenham. Three from Spain, including two Madrid clubs, Atletico Real and Barcelona. Uh, three from Italy, including Juventus and the two Milan clubs. Um, they have uh, announced that in this new uh, league, which is going to be 20 teams, uh, they would be founder members. They'd be joined by another three founder members. Uh, again, already you can see the kind of gaps beginning to open up in this plan. The, the idea is for 15 founder members, but somehow only 12 have declared so far. These founder members anyway would be permanent uh, members of the league. Uh, they, they couldn't be relegated. They're playing it every season. Um, the five other teams in the league would qualify by some as-yet-to-be-defined uh, process. Uh, and they have got a lot of money from JP Morgan, or JP Morgan has, has put together a big debt financing package, so they'd, they'd all get a massive initial payment. And I guess the idea would be they would then proceed to um, take massive uh, broadcast revenues far in excess of what they currently get from the Champions League, while at the same time playing in the domestic leagues in which they're all currently in role. So that's basically the idea. And there's been talk of something like this, if not exactly this, for a long time, right? And the conventional wisdom, as far as I know, it has always been, these are threats that these top clubs want to extract more television revenue or more privileges as like the super elite cast in European soccer from the Champions League. They want to set themselves apart and they want to guarantee themselves a kind of certain security and financial success that the current structure of these leagues does not absolutely guarantee. Like you can have a bad season and not make the Champions League, just ask Manchester United. It's always seemed, Ken, like it's been a threat and it's gotten so far enough at this point with this plan that this does not seem like they're just trying to extract concessions. Because if that was the plan, why would you want to make everyone in the entire world angry at you? Like, it seems like there's a version of it where you can, like, kind of move a little bit in this direction without just pissing everyone off. It's not a threat anymore. I mean, what you say is true. That it's usually saber-rattling, but this has gone beyond that. They've all kind of made a break for it. They're, they've they've declared this is what they're going to do. So now it's a it's a it's a confrontation. And if it doesn't happen, nobody will forget that they tried to do this. Like it's it's gone far enough that like they've they've disgraced themselves in the eyes of of many just by announcing this plan. Well the question is what is is you know what what's the way back from this? I mean I think there is a, I think there is a way back because I think that I think it's it's quite easy to see this plan collapsing pretty fast. I mean already the Lawyers for the group have written to FIFA and UEFA um, talking about how they're going to take legal action to defend themselves because uh, any uh, the, the FIFA and UEFA's threats to put up obstacles to what they're trying to do uh, threatens uh, basically their their finance grant. Uh, J, you know, JP Morgan won't sum up the money if you're going to create all kinds of problems for it, and it seems as though this isn't going to work uh, smoothly. So. You can see that there are vulnerabilities there. It's not as though that there's cast, iron, you know, there's cast iron funding in place, and it's all sort of, it's all solid in that respect. It could still fall apart. And the fact that only twelve of the fifteen have declared, twelve of the fifteen founders. Now the three spaces uh, are 
evidently for Paris Saint-Germain, for Borussia Dortmund, and for Bayern Munich. Uh, they're the other three obvious big clubs that would be part of this. I mean, the the, the absence of France and Germany from this is, is just such a massive... <laughs> it's crazy. Like, I mean, basically what's happening here is these American owners of English clubs are going, your system is insane. Why do you have such a crazy system where you, you can't plan, there's no security? Um, in our leagues, we've got... Uh, you know, it, we've got a certain number of teams in the league. You know you're going to be in the league next year and the year after that. You know that. And you can plan and you you can act in the long term. Look at what's happening at Liverpool this season, right? Liverpool, recently uh, uh, European champions uh, and last season Premier League champions have had a terrible season and may very well miss out on the Champions League, which would slash their budget dramatically at a point at which they've already lost, you know, millions, hundreds of, a uh, hundred million maybe already because of the, uh, pandemic. So it's going to completely crush their budget and any plans they would have to rebuild. I think John Henry, the Liverpool owner, is looking at this going, well, this is crazy. I mean, how how can this how can this make any sense? We've got to get away from this system where, you know, this kind of snakes and ladders game where you can, where at any moment, uh, you know, you can have one bad season go crashing out and all your plans sort of come to nothing. So they're trying to take that risk out of the system. People have tried to bring in an American-style system into European football before this. That idea of of eliminating the risk, uh, of eliminating relegation, that obviously appeals to a lot of owners. The problem is that while the NFL, for instance, is kind of a rationally designed business, it's kind of a top-down structure. You know what I mean? They, you know, they they can sort of say, well, if there's a a region, you know, Phoenix has become a big city. Let's put a team in there. You know, for for example. Whereas in the European uh, football, it's sort of all grown up in this jumble organically. Um, it's not a cartel. It's difficult to see how you can make it into a rational sort of NFL type structure. If you want to get there, you wouldn't start from here. Right. Is what I'm is what I'm saying. And, and Ken, you made mention of like football, and as the person who sort of coming to soccer late in life. What's happening here sort of seems similar to what's been happening in college football in America. Like, for instance, Alabama and Kent State are ostensibly competing in the same division of football, but everybody always knows that that's more true in theory than in practice, that, in fact, the University of Alabama is a powerhouse, and they have access to all the money and the big bowl games and all that sort of stuff. So for the clubs that are like the Kent State University of European soccer, like the clubs that aren't included in whatever the Super League are going to be, um, what is at stake for them? Like if they don't make this, what happens to them? The, one, the ones who are left outside. It's going to be cold outside these walls. It's not, it's not looking good for them. This is all happening in the context of a of a European football economy, which has lately plateaued and obviously with the pandemic has taken a sharp hit. So we're talking here about a, a pie which is suddenly shrinking fast. And this is an effort by the most powerful clubs to grab as much of that shrinking pie as they can for themselves. That's really what's going on. Like, I mean, they've for a long time, they've been saying, we should be getting more, Like particularly in the Premier League, the, the biggest clubs in the Premier League, they're the ones everyone wants to watch. They've been saying, it's not fair uh, the, the way that the money is like shared out pretty equally among the 20 teams in the Premier League. They only want to watch us. You know, we're playing for, we're paying for Crystal Palace and Sheffield United and all these teams uh, that no one really cares about. And they're making like a hundred million a year from TV because of us. And they're, they're riding around on our back, getting a free ride, which that's the, that's the complaint that the big teams have been making all along. They, their resentment of this and the reason it hasn't sort of come to a head before now is that the pie keeps growing. 
So the Premier League has always been able to come back to them and say, yes, we, we hear your concerns about not getting enough of the pie. However, have you seen the size of the latest pie? It is huge. And so the teams <laughs> have, been, have been sort of content to go, okay, well, you know, it, the formula seems to work. Fair enough. You know, I, I saw like the UEFA statement made a reference to, oh, you know, now at a time when solidarity is needed in society more than ever. And it's clear that they were referring to the pandemic and how could you do something as appalling as this in the midst of a pandemic, you know, when, when, with everything that's gone on. But of course, it's the pandemic that's caused this, you know, it's, it, or the, it's, it's like the, the trigger. It's all these clubs, all these, these 12 uh, massively rich uh, clubs, mostly very successful, they're all losing money, hand over fist at the moment. And they're using this crisis, Stefan, to do what they've wanted to do for a long time, right? Right, and and I was going to say that that this has been building. I mean, UEFA and FIFA do not exactly have the solidest ground to stand on. These are not sympathetic figures in the devolution of world sport into the playpen of petrobillionaires. Look, they invited the or, you know Qatari sheikhs and Russian oil money. You mentioned Americans. I mean, there are three Americans of the four vice chairmen of this Super League, Stan Kroenke of Arsenal, who is, you know, nobody loves over here, John Henry of Liverpool, owner of the Boston Red Sox, and Joel Glazer of Manchester United, owner of the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And so this notion that there is some high ground for anybody here morally seems specious to me. Yeah, I I mean, I I sort of agree with you, but the, the difference between this and previous things that have happened to uh, make the rich richer, which in fairness has been a lot of over the last 30 years. I mean, the formation of the Premier League is an example of that. The formation of the Champions League is another example of that, is that this is the first time that you've had a group of clubs come forward and say, we are now different from all the other clubs. We are the permanent elite. We are setting ourselves up above everybody else. It's not a case of we had a good season last season and we're all in the top competition this season getting paid the big bucks. It's like, we declare ourselves to be the elect. That's the way it's going to be from now on. And you can, none of you can do anything to change that. You're all locked out permanently, and we're all in here permanently. So in that sense, it's, it's different from anything we've had before in European football. I think that a lot of Americans might look at this and go, well, I mean, you know, it's about time. It's about time you started doing something like that. I mean, your system has been crazy. I mean, I don't mean just billionaire owners of Premier League clubs who want to make even more money or who want to be able to sell their clubs for more money. I mean, just American sports fans might look at it and say, well, clearly it makes more sense to have all your big clubs, you know, across the continent together in one league rather than having them in hives off into these little regional leagues, which are mostly very uncompetitive anyway. And people do nothing but complain about how boring they are. Um, so, so really, what's the problem? But that's another of the problems with this proposal, as I see it. It's such a small and underwhelming proposal. Like, if you look at the NFL, 32 teams in 30 cities in something like 23 states. But this is so narrow. This is three teams from London. There's three teams from London, two from Manchester, two from Milan, two from Madrid. There's seven cities in three countries. It's a television deal. Yeah, this is not about geography. It's about international footprint, I, I suppose. But who, who are they selling to? Who's the market for this? Right, That's what I'm saying. It's like, they, they're alienating the, both the, the local market, they're alienating nations by threatening to not let players play for the national team. And I assume that they're guessing that they can make all of that up in the global marketplace. 
Um, but it really feels like they haven't done due diligence here. They didn't. They don't seem to have lined up any support behind this. I mean, the the thing that I find most telling here is that the supporters groups of the clubs that are making this move are all offended by it. It's not like even you might think that the fans of, you know, Chelsea or whoever would feel flattered that they're in the elite, but they actually are like, fuck this. Like, I don't, we don't want to be any part of this, this group and, and cloister ourselves off. Because I think there is, even if it's phony, like as fans, we want to feel like we're morally righteous and that we're, on top because of merit and because of rising to the top because our oligarch owner bought the but no we're going to forget about that but because because our players work the hardest and are and are the best but you know Joel another thing that this reminds me of is like this this nostalgia about the Champions League it reminds me of like the Big East which was a mm. conference that was created a super conference for television money out of like nothing. And then when the big East falls apart decades later, people are like, Oh, the big East, the glories of the big East when Georgetown would play Syracuse. And so, you know, the champions league was the thing that was so crass and that was, you know, just created for, for money. But now we're like nostalgic and and soft hearted about that. And so these things can, can evolve and our perceptions can shift as the next greediest thing comes to take its place. I don't know, man. I know Germany and France are not involved in this, but like for now, if they're right, but if this happened, don't you think that fans in Berlin or whatever Nice are going to be like, I still want to see, you know, this league. I still want to see these great players and these great teams go against each other. Even if my hometown team isn't necessarily a part of it, because that's basically the way a lot of, sports leagues work over here already, right? Like, you know, if you live in Salt Lake City, for instance, the Jazz may not be your favorite team. It may be the Lakers or whatever because you grew up with them or whatever. So I don't know, but I, I don't know, like, how provincial Europe is. I, presumably very. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you really think that fans in, in, in Germany and France will be like, ah, this is too small, it doesn't include us, I don't want a piece of this? Well, in, in Germany, Germany is a kind of an unusual case among European countries, I think, because the visible football fans, the ones who you'll see the stadiums, are quite political and usually quite left-wing and that the this sort of a, against modern football movement is is big in germany you know like the this kind of objection to the increasing commercialization of the game and the reason really why, why those two german teams dortmund and, and Bayern, have not said yes to this yet is that they are 50 percent plus one controlled by their supporters and they know their supporters would be against this on principle um, so I think they're kind of waiting to see which way the wind blows. Orbi Leipzig are an interesting example, just the attitude of German fans towards um, Leipzig, the team owned by Red Bull. Red Bull shouldn't own a team as far as they're concerned. So, so they're kind of acting as though this team doesn't exist, even though they're one of the best teams in the country. Like there's a, there's a real kind of resistance to this. It, it's clear that in England at the moment, there's big, the initial fan reaction has been really strongly negative. Ken, what seems like a, an inflection point to me that hasn't gotten that much attention in the first 24 hours of this shit show is the players. Um, th- these th- these threats that players won't be allowed to play for their their countries in the World Cup or the European Championships, um, and whether they would go along with this. I mean, there are a lot of clubs in the world. If you know, if Bayern and Dortmund don't play along here, maybe players say, you know, I'll go play for them. I'll go play for Leicester City. I'll go play for Leeds. Um, we've already seen a few players sort of cryptically tweet 
Um, Bruno Fernandez of Manchester United tweeted, uh, wrote on Instagram, uh, dreams can't be bought. João Cancelo of Manchester City also seemed to be opposed to this under Herrera, now with PSG, formerly of Man United, also came out in opposition to this. I mean, is there a place for the players to have some leverage here in, in tripping this up? I mean, they, they can be part of the pressure. They don't really have any leverage. I mean, they, they do and they don't. I mean, it's, it's a numbers game, I suppose, with players. You know, Bruno Fernandes is a, is a big player. Players have a tendency to just to say, well, look, that's not really the, the kind of political machinations that go on at the top of the sport. That's not really my area of responsibility. I'm kind of concentrating on what's happening in the field. You know, you saw a bit of this recently, I think, with the protests about the Qatar World Cup, you know, the recent World Cup qualifiers, because there's this campaign that started in Norway to like boycott the Qatar World Cup because of all the stuff to do with the migrant workers and the abuse of human rights and so on and so forth. But if the players were told you can't play in the World Cup or you can't play in the Euros? Can they do that though? Can you wait for really, can you wait for do that? Can you wait for do that in the World Cup? I'm not sure they can. I mean, FIFA, FIFA would be the ones who would decide that, I think. Sure. The Euros, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's obviously not something the players players would appreciate, but it's also something that might not stand up in court. We're back to I mean? saber, saber rattling at this point. Yeah, it's, it sounds a bit like that for me. Like, I mean, you know, to sort of punish the players for what the owners are doing. Pff, yeah, I, I'm not sure. It wouldn't be the I'm first sure. time in the history of organized sports that the players are punished for what the owners are doing. No, no, certainly not. Ken Early is a columnist for the Irish Times. He's one of the hosts of the Excellent Second Captains podcast. Ken, thanks so much for coming back to the show. Thanks very much. Enjoyed, enjoyed speaking to you all. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about the persistent belief in some circles that random dude, that's always a dude, can beat an NBA player into the bench player, but an NBA player still. To hear us talk about this belief and why it persists, you have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Mel Kuyper Jr.'s latest mock draft for ESPN has Clemson quarterback Trevor Lawrence going number one to the Jaguars, BYU quarterback Zach Wilson going number two to the Jets, Alabama quarterback Mac Jones going number three to the 49ers, North Dakota State quarterback Trey Lance going number six to the Falcons. That one's via a mock trade with the Dolphins. And Ohio State quarterback Justin Fields going to the Patriots via a mock trade with the Cowboys. It's not often that we get two fake trades in the top 10 of the same fake draft for real quarterbacks. Uh, But let's talk about a real milestone. Quarterbacks have gone one, two, three in the draft before. In 1999, Tim Couch, Donovan McNabb, and Akili Smith got selected in that order. Everybody's been saying that Trevor Lawrence is the best quarterback prospect in human history, or at least since Andrew Luck. Um, They've been saying that ever since Lawrence's freshman year at Clemson. But Joel, 
If history is our guide, a couple of these guys are going to be Tim Couch and Akili Smith, and we don't know who they're going to be. Yeah, and what I remember most vividly about that 1999 draft is that Donovan McNabb was booed by the Eagles fans who were mad at the, the team because they didn't select Ricky Williams with the second pick of the draft. Um, and in retrospect, that sounds outrageous. They wanted to draft a running back, a position that isn't even valued that much anymore over a potential franchise quarterback. But at the time, it was easy to understand their reticence. McNabb was a guy who was tabbed to go to Nebraska and play for Tom Osborne and was still sort of known as much of as a rusher as he was a passer at the time. So in a lot of ways, he was sort of a miracle because black quarterbacks didn't often get drafted that high with that sort of resume. And you could understand why the Eagles fans were like, who is this guy? Why are we picking him at the number two in the draft? And then, of course, boom, McNabb emerges the best QB from that draft over Tim Couch, who was the number one pick and had also been the number one QB in his recruiting class in the same way that Trevor Lawrence was. So at the time, Tim Couch seemed maybe not quite like a sure thing like Trevor Lawrence, but he was a guy who had the pedigree that made you think, oh, he's been good in high school. He's been great in college. He's going to be good, great in the pros. And it didn't happen for him. And so I think the thing that I took from that the most is that we need to know as much about the organizations that these guys are going to as we do the players. Because we don't know, like, we we don't know how good quarterbacks are going to be. And it's really difficult to tell, even after all this time, after all these years, after all the data that they can use to analyze quarterbacks, we they still don't do a great job of figuring it out. But we also don't know who these organizations are. So... Tim Couch played for a terrible Browns organization, and that matters. David Carr played for a terrible Texans organization. That's terrible. Vince Young played for a franchise that didn't want him, and I still think he got a raw deal. Akili Smith. Yeah, Akili Smith went to a terrible organization. So I need to know what kind of coach Urban Meyer is going to be. What kind of coach is Robert Saleh going to be? Is Kyle Shanahan, Kyle Shanahan is supposedly a QB whisperer, but... Nobody really wants Jimmy Garoppolo right now. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I, I, we need to know the thing. We need to know more about the organizations and the coaches are going to be playing for as much as we need to know who these quarterbacks are. Is what yeah, I'm there's a combination of factors, though, here, Joel. It's not just the organization, obviously. This is, a, this is such an imprecise process, and the trail of bad quarterback picks in the NFL draft is far longer, of course, than the number of top draft picks who become huge successes. Talk about Trey Lance. You said he went to North Dakota State. Um, so did Carson Wentz. And Carson Wentz was drafted in 2016. Jared Goff went number one. Carson Wentz went number two. You know, they've had okay NFL careers, right? I mean, they're not terrible quarterbacks, though this past year was not a great one for Carson Wentz. And then look at the quarterbacks taken after them. Paxton Lynch, Christian Hackenberg, Jacoby Brissett, Cody Pressler, Connor Cook, and oh, look who got picked next in the fourth round, Dak Prescott. Picking quarterbacks is one of the most imprecise things that goes on during a draft. With Carson Wentz leaving the Eagles, there's now this, the amazing fact that no quarterback drafted in the first round from 2009 to 2016 will be on the team that originally picked them. And there are good organizations and bad organizations among that crew. And we're in this kind of interesting spot now, Joel, where, as you've mentioned, um, teams are now correctly valuing quarterback. 
And there's no talk about uh, your guy, Najee Harris, going number two in the draft, even though uh, he's going to be a star. Somebody, all, somebody's going to get a steal in Najee Harris, <laughs> I promise you. But yeah, so we're now in, in the spot where teams understand that the only path to sustained long-term NFL success is having a franchise quarterback. But they've still not figured out how to correctly assess who those top quarterbacks are going to be. And so you get this turnover, like Sam Darnold was the savior just a few years ago, and now the Jets think Zach Wilson will be the savior. I think what that means is it's a formula for there being more quote-unquote busts, with more guys being picked maybe above where they should be. Um, And maybe that's actually a justifiable risk, because again, these teams need quarterbacks if they want to be successful. Yeah, and it's not uh, sort of a, a franchise-defining mistake if you take a guy that high and it doesn't pan out in quite the same way, right? Like, if Lawrence doesn't work out, like, it doesn't really set the <laughs> Jaguars back. I mean, they're, they're bad and they're still going to be bad. I mean, that's an extreme example, but it's not like they're trading their whole draft for years to come to get him. Exactly, exactly. Like, it used to be so much more of a albatross if you picked a guy and it didn't work out. But now you can sort of move off of them before they sign their second contract, which would lock you in in a way that would harm the franchise. So it's much easier for these teams to move on if they make a mistake early. I mean, people were legitimately talking about the Dolphins selecting a quarterback in this draft, and they just selected, you know, uh, Tua Tagovailoa just last year in the first round. And he was the guy that was seen as the savior, you know, a few years ago when he was in Alabama. So, I mean, these things are constantly changing all the time. But I do feel very confident, though, that Trevor Lawrence is as good as everybody says he is. That he is, in fact, you know, one of those Elway, Manning, Andrew Luck sort of dudes who is going to succeed no matter what. That Or that essentially... His floor is so much higher than everybody else's that it's hard to envision him failing when he gets to Jacksonville, no matter what's around him. Hmm. I mean, the only thing that doesn't change is that there is constant conversation before every draft about players being savers. And maybe, you know, maybe Trevor Lawrence is that, right? Maybe he will be a Hall of Fame quarterback. Some quarterbacks do make the Hall of Fame. It is possible. It has happened before. Well, I mean, he doesn't have to be a Hall of Famer. He could be Andrew Luck. Andrew Luck may not go to the Hall of Fame, but if you're Andrew Luck, you have to say, that's probably worth the number one pick in the draft, right? Right. Well, the the big conversation about Trevor Lawrence in the last week or so has been these comments that he made in an interview with Sports Illustrated. Look at Sports Illustrated making news. Mm-hmm. Good for them. <laughs> <laughs> Saying, that wasn't condescending. I'm passionate about what I do, and it's really important to me, but I don't have this huge chip on my shoulder that everyone's out to get me, and I'm trying to prove everybody wrong. I just don't have that, which seems like a totally normal human thing to say, which he then was forced to walk back <laughs> and tweet, I love football as much or more than anyone. It is a huge priority in my life. Stefan. Yeah. yeah. So stop questioning him. Yeah. But no, the Andrew Luck comparison is interesting because I guess on the, on the one hand, yeah, he had a really good short career, but I think the Colts are like super pumped that he retired uh, at the age that he uh, retired. And Luck was a guy who was known for having a bunch of outside interests. And I just, I, I still kind of think back to the conversation we had with John Urschel on this show not that long ago where I asked him, like, should NFL teams keep in mind when they're drafting somebody like you, who's like 
clearly has other things going on with his life and like could leave football. And he was like, yeah, I think they should actually keep that in mind that I had, uh, you know, other, other things that I could do. It doesn't affect anything because Jacksonville's still going to take him. So it's, it's, it's not really, it would be more of a conversation if there was some debate about whether he was going to go number one or whether he was that good. Do we, do we have any evidence though, that Trevor Lawrence has an outside interest, like Andrew Luck wanted to be an architect or John Urschel wanted to pursue a PhD in mathematics. I mean, this is more just him talking the way, like you said, a normal people would talk, like a normal person would talk. His brother's like a hipster artist. Does that count? Yeah, maybe he wants to be a hipster artist. Who took the, acid? The Jaguars to totally acid. should be concerned about that. Um, and, and, you know, and, and I, but, you know, if Urschel's right, then, you know, this is really shaping up to be a battle of the chips on their, on, on your, on their shoulders because, and uh, Lawrence says no chip on his shoulder. Kirk Herbstreet interviewed Zach Wilson and said what he liked about him is that he has a chip on his shoulder. He wears yeah. a wristband that says prove them wrong. I can't believe the Jaguars aren't reconsidering. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess. I mean, the thing is, is that it is part of the narrative of most great athletes that they have that, quote, chip on their shoulder and that they're motivated by haters um, and that there does seem, they do seem to be over, overrepresented among elite athletes. But I also think that that's also part of narrative building, right? That, you know, uh, they want you to believe that, you know, they invented push-ups and that they're the first person in and the last person out. And we have no way to double check that, right? Like we will never know how much their work ethic really plays a role in in their greatness, or right? if they work out that much more harder than something than their contemporaries. So that's all the sort of stuff that they're saying. And Trevor Lawrence, you know, used this opportunity to sort of chip away at that myth around him, his own self, and his own approach to the game. But I don't. You know, anybody that read that story, and you guys tell me if I'm wrong here, it sounded a little bit like what a 21-year-old would say, like someone who's fresh out of college who believes they know a lot of the world and what their response to it is going to be, that he has no idea like how hard life can be at the age of 21 in the life that he sort of lived, right? So, you know, you could say, oh, football is going to be like this to me, and then I'm going to be with my wife forever, like he mentioned in his piece, but I mean, he hasn't been hit in the face by Von Miller yet, you know what I mean? Like, we... <laughs> You know, Miles Garrett hasn't chased him down and beat him up for, you know, 60 minutes yet. So we'll see how that how that ages, you know, three years from now. But it sounds enlightened and great right now that, you know, football is not that important. My legacy doesn't matter. I can take it or leave it. But we'll let's let's just check back on that in 2024. The thing that Zach Wilson doesn't understand is that prove them wrong is just highly contextual. Like, what if people are saying he's going to be great? Does he want to prove <laughs> that wrong? Like, dude right. needs to think about a, a wristband statement that can can stand the test of time. I find um, Mac Jones, Trey Lance, and Justin Fields all, like, super interesting for, for various reasons. Like, Mac Jones has one of the greatest statistical seasons ever in college football, dot, dot, dot while basically having every great receiver in, in the entire sport at his disposal. And so how do you evaluate that? Trey Lance has amazing numbers at, you know, already at a FCS school. And so there's going to be some question about level of competition. And then their entire season gets canceled due to COVID, except for one game that they manufacture in the fall as a kind of showcase for him. And so nobody really knows, like you can kind of, forecast or wishcast anything you want on him, but he's, 
you just don't really know what he's going to do against competition. And then Justin Fields, Joel, is like the top recruit coming out of high school, leads his team to the college football playoff, has an amazing statistical year, and then he kind of mysteriously drops below these other guys, and you have to question whether race and old kind of stereotypes about can he read defenses and does he come off his first read, um, whether that's just kind of uh, a racist tropes re- rearing themselves or if there's actually some more legitimate reason to doubt Fields. Well, you, you shared uh, uh, some, some quotes from Dan Orlovsky and, and Joel, you mentioned um, the idea of narrative here and first guy in, you know, work all day, last guy out. And Orlovsky actually expressed concerns over Fields' work ethic, saying that he was he had heard that he was a last guy in, first guy out type of quarterback, and he might not have the desire to be a great quarterback. Um, and he walked those comments back, but it's you know again another constant in pre-draft narratives and conversations seems to be this one. Yeah, I mean, it's just the sort of thing that almost always happens. I mean, I mean, we're all old enough to remember the time that <laughs> there was a, a dispute as to whether or not Cam Newton was the best quarterback in his draft or whether it was Jake Locker and Blake Bortles. I mean, and it's funny, in, in a recent Sports Illustrated article, they talked about how Jake Locker just walked away from football and didn't need it. You know what I mean? That he said, oh, I didn't need football after all. And it, but those were the same concerns that people had about Cam when he came out. They're like, oh, maybe he's just too too much of a showboat and maybe football's not important to him. And it, it's funny to see it happen to the guys that, you know, totally escape that sort of narrative, right? So I think the bottom line here is that nobody really knows what they're doing, right? Like we're just sort of guesstimating who these guys are and who they're going to be. And there's just no way to know because, again, at the top of the segment, Stefan, you said it goes beyond the organizations. You're right. It matters who's going to be blocking for them, who's going to be catching passes for them, who's going to be calling plays for them. All that stuff matters. Their own individual talent is a piece of it, but it's also it's connected to a much larger uh, organization and all these other issues around them. And like we won't know if they can succeed on their own until, you know, far down the line. And situationally, we may never know. We may never know what goes on inside a locker room for a rookie in the NFL. We may never know how his mental makeup evolves during the rigors of training camp and who's calling him an asshole and who's being mean to him and feeling that he's not getting reps in practice or whatever. Um, I saw some of that up close in the short time. I was with one NFL team a long time ago. I mean, this goes on in every locker room and training camp, and that's part of why this is also a crapshoot. Yeah, and the let's just stipulate for the sake of argument that everything Dan Orlovsky said about Justin Fields is true. That doesn't mean it will be true for his entire life, and so you don't know whether people will get better, get stronger, get more devoted, or any any number of other reasons. Be inspired and, by one of their coaches or other leaders in their life. Well, i tell you what. i tell you what, when it comes to Justin Fields, I damn sure would take the guy that's big, strong, fast, accomplished, uh, has been good since he was in high school over a dude like Mac Jones, no offense, who always has looked like the worst athlete on the field. And, I mean, it seems to be that the best case for him is that, well, he's not that athletic. He'll just do what the coach tells him to do. So, anyway. Go, Justin. Go, Buckeyes. 
We'll see. And coming up in the next segment, we're going to talk about Josh's favorite boxer, maybe his favorite celebrity, uh, Jake Paul, who was involved in a boxing match over the weekend. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. The last time we discussed YouTube star Jake Paul on this show, it was in November after his surprising second round knockout of former NBA player Nate Robinson. That fight was the undercard for an exhibition match involving Mike Tyson and Roy Jones Jr., which was ultimately a depressing but nonetheless viral affair. The event apparently did so well that Triller, the social media company that promoted the last event, decided to do it again Saturday night. But with Jake Paul as the headliner of the fight card this time, And once again, the main event was essentially a sideshow. Paul knocked out retired MMA champion Ben Askren in the first round. But the night was much more about spectacle. Triller staged an hours-long concert that included the Black Keys. I don't know who they are, but I'm sure they're great. And Justin Bieber, who I do know a little bit, but he's okay. And uh, they brought in Saturday Night Live cast member Pete Davidson for comedic relief and let their business partner Snoop Dogg have his run of the place. So Josh... We might have gotten a glimpse of the future of boxing on Saturday. Snoop and Triller are not going away. They've already got plans to stage fights involving Evander Holyfield and Oscar De La Hoya. And Jake Paul himself has promised to fight more over-the-hill opponents. So do you think this is a viable model for boxing going forward? So, Joel, when I said, do we really want to give uh, Jake Paul attention? You made uh, the point that given his like 20 million or however many it is social media followers, he probably doesn't care. Just on YouTube, just on YouTube. It it probably doesn't make much of a difference to him, whether we talk about him or not, to which I respond, Mm -hmm. you make a great point. Um, (laughs) And and I've been put put in my place. You're kind of noting that Jake Paul went from being on the undercard to the main event is really telling and revelatory about what Triller is trying to do here. If this is the future of boxing, it is one in which boxing gets kind of smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller as a piece of a larger kind of entertainment product. And uh, his piece about it, Michael Rothstein of ESPN, noted that the ring itself was literally smaller, (laughs) it appeared to him, than a regulation boxing ring. And so there's a long, long history of hype and promotion exceeding the product in boxing. And so if we're talking about that as context, then this is within the like history and tradition of this sport. But I do wonder if this is the future, then does that actually pretend a future in which boxing, if if it's like a part of like a popular series, is still kind of diminished in terms of its reputation, even below its uh, extremely low reputation at the moment. Well, the problem, part of the problem is that the the most promoted parts of Triller uh, right now seem to be people like Evander Holyfield and Mike Tyson and Roy Jones Jr., 
who are men in their 50s boxing. If you don't have athletes that you can promote at the top of the sport that will attract viewers beyond the core audience for a sport, you got problems. Um, so this is, I think, perceived as a smart end around that people will pay whatever pay-per-view price to watch Justin Bieber sing, and then eh, if they stick around to watch whoever happens to be on the boxing card, great. Um, and But what this seems to be framed, that Rothstein and his ESPN piece and others seem to be framing as the, the what to watch is whether they can book real cards and combine them with entertainment and draw both audiences, people that might not be that interested in boxing, but real hardcore boxing fans that care about the current best fighters in the game. Yeah, and I mean, the thing is, a real card is something that most non-boxing fans are watching anyway, right? Like, let me just ask you two, like, are, do you all... Are you normally in the habit of watching boxing? Like, even if they're just two real strong boxers that, you know, have great reputations and spotless records, are, are you all in the habit of watching boxing? Well, the long kind of history of the sport is that it is extremely impenetrable for to casual fans just because the barrier to entry is so high because everything's on pay-per-view, unless you want to, like, pirate a stream or something like that. See, you can watch boxing every weekend on ESPN. You can watch it on one of those Fox Sports channels. The thing is, though, is you don't people don't typically want to watch a random WBA lightweight fight on a Friday night if it's not somebody that they've ever heard of, right? And so I don't see it being a problem for boxing because there's only a few boxers that the vast majority of the sports viewing public watches anyway. Like people usually don't tune in. Uh, unless it's like Manny Pacquiao or Floyd Mayweather or somebody like that. And it takes a long time to build up that sort of reputation. So um, I think that this is a sort, this is actually a sustainable model for boxing that like maybe they throw in some of the over the hill guys and an exhibition and a social media star on an undercard. And then maybe if they get lucky someday, they can get, you know, one of the, the champions, a guy like Earl Spence or Terrence Crawford, you know, um, you know, God forbid they could, if they could ever, you know, get it together and get in the ring someday. Cause that's a fight that people want to see. And maybe they could top one of these promotions in addition to all this other stuff that makes up, an entertaining evening, but um, it's just going to take some time. And I, you know, I mean, I, anything that would raise the profile of boxing within limits, because I mean, Jake Paul, as you have mentioned, uh, Josh is sort of an odious person, but um, anything that can sort of raise the profile of the sport a little bit, um, I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. And I mean, wh what's the harm in taking boxing out of the hands of guys like Bob Arum or Al Heyman, right? Like, what have they done for the sport or the people that participate in it? So I, I, I don't see the downside to this, at least right now. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that it would, as, as I said before, it's, it's not like you can make boxing dirtier or seedier than it already is. Like, I don't think, I don't think that's the problem here. Um, but the thriller aspect of this is really fascinating to me. And what the story is, is that you have this company that has an enormous amount of venture capital money. And we've seen this across all sorts of fields and industries. And I didn't actually know this before like doing research 
for this segment. But what Triller is, is like it's a rival to TikTok. And what they've been doing is offering huge amounts of money and equity to TikTok stars um, in order to get them to use the platform. And you saw some of those TikTok stars like Charlie D- uh, D'Amelio on the um, <laughs> Wait broadcast. A time out, time out. Yes. Do you know who Charlie D'Amelio is? You said it like some of those TikTok stars like Charlie D'Amelio. I you know do know t- who that is, Joel. Do you really? Okay. I, I, okay. Do you follow her, hun? I do not. I don't. I'm not on TikTok, but I am in uh, Slate Slack where people are discussing these things okay. all the time. And I pay attention. I, I file things away. <laughs> to the extent that this is a smart play for Triller, it's that there are many different reasons that someone would tune into this pay-per-view. Maybe somebody wants to watch Jake Paul. Maybe somebody wants to watch Charlie D'Amelio. Maybe somebody wants to watch, um, you know, Evander Holyfield when he's on next. Maybe somebody wants to watch Justin Bieber. It's like um, they're not only going in one lane or banking on one particular thing. But I predict that within the next five to 10 years, there will be a Netflix documentary about how all these people (laughs) spent a billion dollars and lost all of the money. I mean, it feels like a WeWork-ish type situation here. And Bob Arum, who, you know, you name-checked before, Joel, whatever you think about Bob Arum, I think he's probably right in saying these dudes are, like, massively overpaying. I mean, they had a crew of, like, 200 people producing the show. Can you imagine how much they paid Justin Bieber to do this performance? I mean, like, how many more of these cards... Do you think we're going to get until they like run it before they run out of money? Well, run out of money or run out of patience. I mean, the 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 thriller people seem to be pushing their approach here as some sort of you know disruptive genius idea, the four quadrant approach to boxing with you know YouTube stars like Paul and then boxing legends and then actual boxing um, legit current boxing matches. They've got uh, a June 5th card that'll include a, a lightweight championship fight. Um, and then music. So, I mean, why just, why stop at that? Why stop at a quadrant? Why couldn't it be six or eight or 10 things? I mean, this does seem to be a little bit throwing something against the wall and hoping it sticks enough that you get enough pay-per-view buys to pay for Justin Bieber's fee and pay Mike Tyson to, you know, go talk on camera or get in the ring. So, yeah. yeah well, every, every company looks smart until they run out of money. Of course. It's true. It's true. I mean, you know, who, who's to say right now, uh, Adrian Broner, who was sort of a Floyd Mayweather, you know, wannabe, um, said yesterday on Twitter that he wanted to leave Al Heyman and Showtime and maybe join one of these trailer promoted cards. And the reason was that Jake Paul got, Allegedly six hundred and fifty thousand dollars. That's just Jake Paul. That's not Pete Davidson who was there. That's not you know who all the other people that they had to pay that were there. But like right now, the money is flowing and people want a piece of it, and they're hoping. I guess the same with Uber, the same with WeWork, the same with everything else. They're just hoping. Well, eventually we'll make money someday. It may not be anytime soon, but the bet is is that eventually this is going to draw people's attention. And and for whatever it's worth, rigged was trending after that after Jake Paul's fight on Saturday night. So it did get some attention, maybe not the attention they wanted, but who's to say is rigged a bad word in boxing? Like sometimes that's the stuff that, that Yeah, that's like the word that trends after every boxing, every boxing match. match. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, do we know that the money's flowing out? Do we have any sense of how much money is flowing in? Tyson's 
Triller match drew, what, a reported 1.6 million pay-per-view buys. What seems like a lot. I mean, I think the record is like 4.6 million for a boxing match. I mean, well, Tyson reportedly turned down $25 million to fight Evander Holyfield's in a Triller match. And that, right. that would have done huge business, I'm sure. I mean, they have I mean, succeeded, I think, in figuring out how to get attention on social media. Mm-hmm. However much that translates into a real and sustainable business, we don't know. But there is there is some kind of intelligence operating here and an ability to capture attention and eyeballs is not nothing. But I mean, Joel, it does seem worth noting, you know, I've said repeatedly in the segment, you can't get kind of seedier and dirtier than boxing already is. But Justine Paradise, another TikTok star, accused Jake Paul of uh, sexually assaulting her. Um, which Jake Paul has denied. Pete Davidson actually asked him about that on the on the broadcast. Pete Mike Wallace Davidson asked him about it. Yeah, Jake Paul's an odious figure. Also, on Triller has kind of branded itself as a MAGA friendly app, like MAGA friendly alternative to TikTok, and it became popular among like people in Trump world. And Trump himself posted. A video there. And so I think that does fit in to the throw everything in the wall and see what sticks. Like there is an ethos here that's basically like do anything you possibly can to get attention and to be successful. And nothing that we can possibly do that would make us successful could be bad. Yeah, that's true. I mean, hey, look, you said MAGA friendly. Hey, we like college football, and that's the MAGA-friendly sport there is. So, I mean, hell, if Triller wants in on that, go for it, man. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student-athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. And as Stefan would say, and now it's time for afterballs. So Errol Spence, one of the very best welterweights in the world, that we can't know for sure until he fights Terrence Bud Crawford, one of those super fights that boxing fans desperately want, but probably won't happen until they're both well past their prime. Um, his name came up in the previous segment on boxing. We were talking about fake boxers, but Errol Spence is actually one of the very good ones. In fact, one of the great ones. Um, he's 27-0 with the win uh, most recently over Danny Garcia, a very strong welterweight, if I do say so myself. Um, but Errol Spence broke him down, which was a, a triumphant return from a car accident in 2019 that really could have ended his career, but looks like he's healed up pretty good. And so this is a good time to salute Errol Spence and his greatness and also, maybe a call for him to fight Terrence Crawford someday so that we don't have to watch all our fights on Triller. So, Stefan, what is your Errol Spence? 
Earlier this month, Rustin Dodd of The Athletic chronicled a 1986 New York Mets song, of which I had no recollection, called Get Metsmerized. Participants included George Foster, Dwight Gooden, Daryl Strawberry, Lenny Dykstra, and Howard Johnson. And it was a disaster, which was the point of the story. Get mesmerized, get mesmerized. I'm George Foster. I love this team. The Mets are better than the Red Machine. I live to play, and that's my thing. This year, we're going to win the series ring. To its credit, Get Metsmerized did rhyme Filled with Terror and Rick Aguilera. The song bombed later that summer as they were running away with the Eastern Division. The team recorded an official track, Let's Go Mets Go, which had a more of a Van Halen vibe and included a cameo by Joe Piscopo, plus appearances by Twisted Sister Howard Stern, Soupy Sales, Hal Linden, Tony Bennett, Melba Moore, Ed Koch, Dr. Joyce Brothers, and others saying, let's go, Mets go. That record went gold. The songs were, of course, trying to clone the success of the 1985 hit Super Bowl Shuffle by the Chicago Bears, as did many others. The NFL alone gave us Buddies Watching You by the Philadelphia Eagles, Can't Touch Us by the Miami Dolphins, Cause the Blue Wave is on a Roll by the Seattle Seahawks, and the apotheosis of the genre, Ram It by the mid-80s Los Angeles Rams. Let, let's listen. I'm a mountain man from West VA. They call me Herc and I came to play. I learned long ago to ram it just right. You can ram it all day and ram it all night. Ram it. Classic. Uh, after the Mets piece posted, people on Twitter shared their favorite bad sports videos. Andy Glockner mentioned one that I hadn't heard of, One for the Thumb by the San Diego Sockers. That's Sockers, S-O-C-K-E-R-S. They played in indoor and outdoor versions of the North American Soccer League in the 1970s and early 80s, and in the major indoor soccer league and in other indoor soccer leagues. Heading into the 85-86 season, the Sockers had won four straight indoor titles, so one for the thumb. One for the thumb isn't any better or worse than any of the NFL or other big league efforts, but there's something, I don't know, a little less crass and a little more endearing about an indoor soccer team that during its glory days drew between seven and 11,000 fans per game recording a terrible rap song and video. Also, some of the players on that team were guys from my soccer-loving childhood when I might have attended an indoor game or two myself. One for the Thumb opens with a traffic report about a huge backup before a big soccer's game and then cuts to the team's play-by-play -play guy, Randy Hahn, who's pretending to be a DJ and narrates the song. Hey, San Diego, what's got you down? Do you need a winning team for a winning town? Then there's one thing I know for sure. A soccer's game is a miracle cure. Han has done play-by-play -play for the San Jose Sharks for 20 years, so this did not end his career. After the intro, there's the usual roll call of players delivering a personal verse. I'm going to play two of guys that I remember. First comes uh, Julie V., who was born in Hungary, defected at age 18 while playing for the U-21 national team, and spent almost all of his pro career in the United States, including time with the U.S. national team. It's important to note that he wore number 22 and that his last name is spelled V-E-E-E, -E -E, three E's. Double deuce and triple E, he's the one and only Julie V. He'll use his head, he'll use his feet, there's no defender that he can't beat. 
I've watched this about 10 times, and the transition to V talking is hilarious, everyone. Uh, for some reason, he's rolling a ball on the stomach of a prone goalkeeper. Also, for the record, that's how he was introduced by the PA announcer at games, Double Deuce, Triple E, the one and only Julie V, which is pretty good. All right, and then we've got Bronco Sagoda. He's a Croatian-born Canadian who scored a ridiculous 463 goals indoors, 73 outdoors. Everybody loved him because of his fantastic name. Sagoda's legendary 20-year career included two years with a team called the Las Vegas Dust Devils of the Continental Indoor Soccer League. Let's let this clip run from Broncos verse into the chorus. Number 20 does it all. His shots take off like cannonballs. Over hill and over dale is how he'll hit the title trail. I'm gonna let my teammates down. They'll ride the Bronco to the crown. There was another legend on that team, Steve Jungle, who uh, racked up 652 all-time indoor goals and was known as the Lord of All Indoors. But the Sockers were so deep that they sold Jungle during the season to the Tacoma Stars, whose GM called it the indoor soccer equivalent of Dan Fouts coming to the Seahawks. Tacoma paid 200 grand for Jungle and gave him a contract worth 200 grand and a $150,000 bonus. Real money in indoor soccer. Anyway, you might be wondering if the Sockers did, in fact, get one for the thumb in 1986. They did. They beat the Minnesota Strikers 5-3 in Game 7 of the Major Indoor Soccer League Championship Series. And not only that, they won another hand's worth of rings five in a row from 1988 to 1992. Congrats to the Sockers. That's great. Uh, congrats on your 1986 uh, championship, belatedly. I'm sorry that it's taken me a while to, to send the congrats. We're the Sockers, Josh. You're the fans. We use our feet. You use your hands. I do hope that eventually people will move past that sort of rapping someday because I still think that there's a lot of that my name is Stefan, and I'm here to say, you know, you know that kind of that kind of style of rapping. And uh, I just, people should update their mainframe. Listen to a little bit more hip hop because people don't rap like that anymore. This but, was 1986. Uh, yeah, but I know, but yeah, I, it's still like whenever people are doing like you know satire, cor- hip hop, corporate satire. Yeah, too. I just kind of feel like they they haven't updated uh, their understanding of hip hop since. But then, do you so. think that the, the the team rap song should come back, Joel? Would you like to see that? You know, I, I'm not against it. Uh, it does seem like a much more optimistic, happier time. Didn't that just make you feel good, you know, to see that? So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm for it. If they can pull it off, yeah, let's do it. On that optimistic note, that is our show for today. Our producer this week, Margaret Kelly. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And please subscribe to our show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us out. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. Judy. 
Chumba. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.